Hey, Susanna, how you doing? Hey, David, I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. What's happening? Um, did you see the new Bill McKibben newsletter that came out? No, no. Any, any hot news from Bill McKibben is worth checking out. What did he say? Yeah, well, he has his newsletter that he sends out, and it's usually, honestly, like, not super optimistic. Mm, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, but the uh, subject of this one is something went right. Oh, you know, one of the campaign promises of Biden had been that there would not be any new drilling on federal lands. Uh, period, period, period was the quote from him. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, of course, he has not been able to actually come through with that commitment because there, there are other departments which actually oversee those things and are selling the leases anyway. Right, right. Um, but they got a victory this past week because there was a ruling by a court that said that they have to do a full assessment of the climate impact oh. um, of doing this lease before they can actually give it the go-ahead. So it's kind of a big win. That's great. Uh, Biden could use a big win, and particularly on climate, considering all of his high-level climate cabinet members have been resigning left and right. So that's great. That's actually a really, really great bit of news. Yeah, and I would, I mean, there's tons more details in this newsletter if you want to check out all the the deets but yeah, it, yeah it's nice to have some good climate news you know definitely definitely and i think uh, on the other side of things by by other side of things i mean the other end of the news spectrum the fed <laughs> is getting ready to raise interest rates yay and yeah it's gonna have lots of effects apparently you know crypto prices seem to be tanking yay i actually love that i love the crypto prices are tanking stock markets generally dipping and preparing for a sell-off consumer prices might stabilize as it's predicted uh, that folks will stop spending so much money. So yay to that. Yeah, yay. Wait, is this actually good news? I'm not sure. I don't. What are you talking about? Today? Yeah, well, we, you know, to, we tend to not really like talk very much about the economy. And this, you know, this podcast in general is not about the economy. But, you know, in the solution season, we promised that we would be taking on and evaluating various different potential, you know, elements of the solution to the climate crisis. And today's episode is all about the Fed. The Fed, huh? Is that like... The FBI? <laughs> yeah, that's a very, that's a totally easy common misconception. No, I'm talking about the Fed, which is the Federal Reserve System, sometimes called the Federal Reserve or simply called the Fed. And that is the central banking system of the United States of America. Oh, don't, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I promise this episode will be full of jargon, which we'll do our best to explain. But the Fed was created back all the way back in 1913. Uh, with the enactment of the Federal Reserve Act. And basically, after a series of financial panics, there was like the big financial panic in 1907 for all my <laughs> US econ history buffs out there. Uh, but basically, after that panic, it led to the desire for sort of central control of the monetary system in America in order to alleviate potential financial crises. And over the years, there's been some financial crises. There's been the Great Depression. Uh, and then, of course, in our lifetime, the Great Recession, many other minor crises in between. Uh, and through each of those crises, the Fed or the Federal Reserve System has expanded their sort of roles uh, of, and responsibilities. Think of it as like a big advisory bank that sits on top of all the other banks and sits on top of all of the economy of the U.S. and it's got sort of powers and goals that it that it sets out to achieve. I feel like if this were like a YouTube show, you would have said that over stock footage of like miners in the 1800s like <laughs> chewing on pieces of gold to see yes. if it was real or not. Yes, yes. And then there would be like superimposed like stonk bros, like vaping and like in sitting in gaming chairs as the new coal miners. But yeah, the Fed is, it's been around. It's It's been around for over a century now. And they do have some, you know, clearly stated goals. They're all about creating conditions in the US that maximize employment for as many Americans as possible. They're also 
deeply concerned with stabilizing prices and moderating long-term interest rates, which is why they're likely going to be in the news a bunch for the next few weeks to the next few months. As you know, the Biden administration has promised, it's going to work very closely with the Fed and other organs of the government to essentially fight all this inflation that you've been reading about and or feeling in line at the grocery store or at the pump. The Fed's got purchasing power to invest in short and long-term opportunities directly. They can use that money to like reinforce specific areas of the economy in both the public and the private sector. They basically have like a whole bunch of economic powers that they can use to sort of meet that three-part goal, employment, stabilizing prices, and moderating long-term interest rates. So you might be thinking to yourself, how could this organ of federal finance possibly help fight the climate crisis? Well, I think a big part of understanding how the Fed could potentially be a solution to the climate crisis is first understanding how they are currently propping up the oil industry in America. Well, I mean, I totally understand what the Fed is because I'm an informed American citizen and I don't have any (laughs) questions about how our government works. Sure. But for all the people who might not be as familiar, who might be like, what? The Fed? I mean, they're the ones that set the interest rate. Yes. yes, I feel like that's kind of the biggest thing that we know. Like, that's how we hear about them all the time is like, are they going to raise it? Are they going to lower it? Yeah. Yeah. But like, what are their other levers? Like, I don't really get what they do. Totally, totally fair. And I think in good times, i.e. in times where the economy is not in crisis, that's probably the biggest, most visible thing that they do is they advise on and or set the interest rate. And they're not just setting like a single monolithic interest rate for all of America at any given time. They're actually in the weeds. They're setting specific interest rate for specific types of loans. They're setting specific interest rates for specific types of lenders or creditors. Um, They really do a big, deep job of evaluating risks is one way to put it. Like their big job is sort of looking for risks and looking for opportunities and then adjusting interest rates based on those risks and opportunities. They also take in certain political factors, right? They'll like kind of take a look at America, America's economy and make big predictions based on economic papers and science and research, uh, and then try to kind of help point America towards the profit, really. It's a capitalist society, so we're always trying to get ahead of other governments or other world banks. There's many, many versions of the Fed around the world, so we're trying to sort of stay competitive. And for a very long time, you know, even up until the present, the dollar, the American dollar, commands a heck of a lot of influence in global economic markets around the world. So like setting these interest rates, of course, has, you know, an impact on us, everyday Americans taking out loans or Um, refinancing our mortgages or whatever, right? Whatever it might be. But this also has ripple effects around the world as it sort of pertains to the power of the dollar. They're also like totally in the market themselves. The Fed can like buy and sell things. They can sell like government securities or bonds. These are really complicated things that like we could spend an entire episode on, but I'm not going to because I want to really focus on uh, one really critical thing, which was you know, in the in the sort of Great Recession of 2007-2008, the Fed deeply expanded their powers to deal with that crisis. And I think, especially to sort of our generation of Americans, one easy example of, of one of the Fed's powers that came to bear during the 2007-2008 crisis was also the power of direct monetization. Like the Fed can just print money and or give money to specific groups. So as us in the 99% look back on 2008 and see, the Fed was indeed the organ of the US government that bailed out all the banks, you know, and all the banks were failing due to the, the sort of bundled, you know, subprime mortgages that were all defaulting one after another. They they had no pockets to dig deep into. And so the Fed, in a very sweeping emergency action, basically just created a bunch of funny money and gave it to the banks to bail them out. Direct monetization is just another one of the tools that the Fed can use. Wow. Okay. So that's crazy. And <laughs> a whole other podcast topic. And you said the Fed is actually currently propping up the oil industry. I mean, yeah. that seems like you're telling me things like they can print funny money and then that they're also currently propping up the oil industry. I feel like I'm starting to make my own kind of connections here. I don't know <laughs> if they're the right ones. Yeah, no, Tell you feel more. free to speculate. The one way to, to understand the key way that the Fed is propping up the oil industry right now, one of the Fed's emergency lending facilities, basically the programs they put together to distribute 
uh, emergency funds on loan is called the Main Street Lending Program, the MSLP. And that was established to provide emergency support to small and mid-sized businesses at the onset of pandemic. This was an expansion of the sort of Main Street Lending Program that started in 2008. They basically expand that program to include not so small and mid-sized businesses like Mm, I don't know, giants in the oil and gas industry. Uh, so basically, the gas industry, as we know, has multi-million dollar lobbies uh, that go out and sort of wine and dine and pour sugar in the ear of and put, you know, heavily skewed research papers on the desks of, you know, our representatives in Congress and Senate. And in 2019 and into 2020, after extensive pressure directly from these lobbyists um, and their allies in Congress, the Trump administration basically changed the scope of the MSLP in, to basically just throw a whole bunch of money at the oil industry. Now, the oil and gas industry was struggling well before the current pandemic crisis. A lot of their industry is obviously based on real estate and labor and specialized equipment, and all of those tend to get more expensive uh, in inflationary periods, which we basically the sort of changes to the MSLP allowed the oil industry to get an immediate influx of cash. Very, very cheap sort of lines of credit were, were kept very, very low. So basically the oil industry just got like a huge bailout. Wow. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing that that is what happened when you consider how much emphasis is put on the American economy being all about the free market and capitalism and not giving handouts, et cetera, et cetera. And then here comes an industry which is failing and causing so much harm and we keep propping it up. And I mean, on the one hand, that seems so counter to all American philosophies and policies. But on the other hand, it's like, I mean, a, a failing oil industry means people can't pay to heat their homes or fuel their cars. And then it's, I mean, that's major economic pain, right? Yeah. No, on the fair. one hand, it seems outrageous. And on the other hand, it seems inevitable. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing, I think the sort of insult to injury in this case was that these were moves, these bailouts were happening at a time where demand was incredibly low. If you think about those for the sort of first quarter uh, of the year that kind of kicked off after the outbreak, after the sort of the COVID-19 outbreak, like everyone was, you know, at stay at home orders. I mean, even our own business that has installers driving around the Hudson Valley capital region in New York and then in Vermont, like everyone was kind of grounded for the first month and a half, two months. So you imagine that on a global scale, like this was a time where demand for, you know, gas, the number one product of that oil industry was completely stagnant. You know, and this is the exact time where those prices were artificially propped up uh, and those industries were essentially kept from having to suffer what every other business uh, in the world was going through. It's, it's pretty crazy. It's, it's pretty insulting. And so what I'm going to argue here uh, for the solutions episode is that the Fed could immediately or very, very quickly retract that aid and sort of cut off that emergency funding to big oil. And I think there's also a couple of things that it could do to uh, make the path ahead for big oil a little bit more competitive uh, with the rest of the industries in the world. So I'm going to argue that the Fed could have a major impact uh, on the climate crisis. Shall we, shall we get right into the format? Let's do it. This is a juicy topic. All right. So impact, right? So as I was saying, many ways, uh, the Fed sits right on top of our national economy and it's looking for opportunities to like mitigate risks, stimulate opportunities, right? And in the case of climate change, what I'm basically saying is we need to cut off the oil industry. And on top of that, the Fed has kind of is creeping towards a reality where it might actually start to weigh and uh, factor in climate-related risks to the financial system when it decides what types of interest rates to award specific industries, how to risk or promote uh, certain investments in certain industries. And the cool part is for, for the impact side of things, the Fed is already engaged in the work of weaving climate science and climate risks into their everyday practice. It's not theoretical. The Fed basically set up two committees one to study how climate change may affect the nation's economic stability, and the other to examine the sort of individual banks that it oversees as the Fed and what their potential holdings or investments might kind of put forward as in terms of climate risk. And then as well in late 2020, the Fed also joined the multilateral network of central banks and supervisors, 
for greening the financial system, which we'll talk about later in the timing section. So they join this big international group for greening the financial system, and they already have two committees that specifically are looking at climate science and how uh, climate risks will affect the economy. So that's pretty cool. Well, that's uh, great. Yeah, yeah, it, it is pretty great. And I, honestly, Susanna, like the risks that the Fed are looking at should be pretty common knowledge to any listener of the solar spill. It's like, this is in their words, quote, climate risks can manifest as shock to the financial system. Acute hazards such as storms, floods, or wildfires can quickly change or reveal new information about future economic conditions or the value of real or financial assets with the potential for sudden large shifts in perceptions or risk. Chronic hazards like a slow increase in mean temperatures or rising sea levels, these could produce abrupt repricing events if investor expectations or sentiments about the physical risks change abruptly. So basically, like we're realizing that climate change is real, and as it changes, it might have adverse effects on areas of the economy. Uh, and thus, when they talk about repricing, ab abrupt repricing events, they're saying, oh, and if we see that in the science, there is a big enough risk. We, the Fed, can reprice, uh, change the value of interest, credit, uh, our loans, our emergency investments, and advise investors on their expectations or sentiments about those risks. So they continue to go on to say such adverse effects can result in direct financial risks, prompting a reassessment of asset values, changing the cost or availability of credit, or affecting the timing or reliability of cash flows. That's the direct quote from the Fed. We see the science shows that climate change is changing, and it's going to present risks to national and international finance systems. So as the Fed, we can and will consider taking actions uh, in the ways that we're charged to do and like kind of, you know, changing your valuation based on your climate risks. Does that make sense? I mean, that sounds amazing. They're like doing research to see how climate change is going to affect the economy. And spoiler alert, things don't look good. Right? <laughs> like, I just want them like read the science, man. Like yeah. go back to that report that we talked about just a couple of months ago that said society is literally going to collapse between 2040 and 2050. Mm -hmm. The economy is going to collapse. Like the world as we know it, not looking good, guys. Like, I just, <laughs> Can they just read that and let's go? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it seems like uh, we'll get to this in a little bit in the timing section, while they are absolutely, it's great that they're kind of getting to the starting line and saying, hey, climate change is real and we're looking at the science. They are absolutely lagging behind other central banks. So we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, when we get to the timing section. But in terms of impact, they could apply real and relatively intense economic pressure to not only move towards renewables, like move towards the things that would be the solution to climate change, but even more imp importantly, the Fed could immediately shock uh, the economy of the oil industry and make it incredibly unfavorable for banks or individual investors to lend money uh, to them by first, you know, cutting off that lifeline that they tossed at the beginning of the pandemic. And then there's just a lot more. There's like a, there's a bunch of steps that they could kind of do directly to make it even harder for the oil industry to navigate the next decade. So among those powers, essentially, there's a few different things that climate activists, particularly climate activists that have a, a sort of strong background in uh, the sort of macro economy of the US, they've put forward five basic recommendations um, that the Fed can can do within their current powers as the Fed. And so they're saying the number one thing that would have the highest impact is, of course, cut them off, you know, prohibit the fossil fuel sector's access to the emergency lending facilities. That's that Main Street lending program. So basically cut off the free money. That's number one. Number two is evaluate and disclose the risks that climate change poses to its emergency lending portfolio to discourage other banks and investors from putting their money into fossil fuel companies. So cut them off and then basically disclose the data that is driving the Fed to cut them off and basically use their communications platform to discourage other banks and investors from putting their money towards that those fossil fuel companies. That's number two. Number three is account for and disclose the level of greenhouse gases uh, emissions, basically, uh, that it is that the Fed is currently financing through these emergency programs, which would create accountability as to how much of the Fed's lending facilities are actually contributing directly to the climate crisis. And then four is develop and publish a plan to limit its financed uh, greenhouse gas emissions, like the Fed's greenhouse gas emissions, 
And finally, five, seek to actively mitigate the financial stability risks of climate change by joining the NGFS and incorporating climate risks into its regulatory and supervisory framework. So on this last point, the great news is, of course, in 2020, the US did join the uh, NGFS, the sort of greening collection of world banks. We just have not adopted their regulatory or supervisory frameworks just yet. So cut off the lifeline, encourage others to cut off their lifelines and investments, disclose the level of greenhouse gas that the Fed is currently directly sponsoring through their emergency programs that creates accountability, develop and publish a plan to mitigate their greenhouse gas emissions through their funding, then like really take seriously the sort of frameworks and regulatory and supervisory you know, systems of the NGFS. I mean, all this makes total sense and seems like a good idea. I just wonder, you know, the they're like going to discourage other banks and investors from putting their money into fossil fuel companies. But like how, how strongly can they discourage? Can they prohibit? Can they regulate that? Or is it really just a, well, we don't think it's a good idea. Um, I feel like, you know, fossil fuel companies aren't going to have any trouble finding rich people to give them money to keep doing what they're doing. It's a fair, it's a totally fair pushback. And I think in all of these cases, we have to think about what the Fed can directly control and then secondarily what they can influence. So I did a little bit more digging and the Fed indeed could ban any of the financial institutions, the banks, the investors that are receiving emergency funds from them, which are many, like they could, they could actually straight up regulate the, the sort of stopping of direct investments from the banks that the Fed is currently overseeing uh, or loaning money to, which is great. That would have an immediate effect, but I think it would also have a potentially second, like really, really good chilling secondary effect because look, the economy's all connected. We see this when confidence measures in one type of financial institution start to wane, you start to see sell-offs, right? Or when there's all of a sudden a really big, you know, reason to believe some sort of hype, there's a big, you know, buying frenzy, a feeding frenzy on the stock market or in the investment circles. So I do think that if the Fed like went all the way, like went to the paint on this and forbade all of its sort of Child, children banks to, to invest as well. I think it would actually send a huge signal to uh, global financial financial institutions. And I think you're right, Susanna, like there's no way to stop everyone from investing, like individual rich, you know, folks who want to, or even independent investment houses that might see an opportunity. They can still do it. But I do think that if an organ as large and influential as the Fed straight up like cut off the lifeline and banned their own party, like their own family of banks and investors from putting their money into fossil fuel companies, I think it would have a huge effect. Okay. And then there's, I mean, there's a piece on creating accountability as well, which is great. I love that they want to look for, you know, the level of greenhouse gas emissions that they're financing, but like, who's their boss? Like accountable (laughs) to who? No, you're, this one, this one is tough. This one could definitely knock some points uh, off of the impact score here. You, you had this question as we were preparing for the, the podcast last week. And you know, the more that I dug into this, and I was especially looking for the NGFS, the sort of greening community of all the other world banks, uh, the, the sort of network of central banks and supervisors for the greening of the financial system. That's like the, when I really dug into the research, that would be the group that could potentially force a certain degree of mechanical accountability to the Fed. But a lot of experts are likening it a lot to the US's participation in the United Nations, right? Where unfortunately, because we're this like, you know, <laughs> exactly. Thank you, sad bone, sad trombone. Um, when we are this like, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the, in the world, you know, in the middle of the room, kicking and screaming essentially by, by nation states age, like a, an asshole teenager by age, right? Not the youngest, not the oldest. Uh, we just command a hell of a lot of might, economic, military, technology, manufacturing. So it would be very difficult to hold us accountable with a stick. It might be that a combination of geopolitical and economic, you know, 
forces would happenstance to create a condition where we could be put under significant pressure by other world banks. But that is that is definitely the sort of chink in the armor in terms of the Fed's accountability. It's like we're just too big and too influential. The dollar's too strong for us to kind of be subservient to another central bank right now. So yeah, accountability would be a big problem moving forward. Okay, well, let's talk about timing too, because I feel like this is one of the things that I have a question on. It's like, we already have a lot of science, which they should be taking into account, and they have these committees set up to do so, and it hasn't happened yet. So (laughs) is this realistic? Like, could we actually get this to happen in the next couple of years so that we could see a real impact from it? You know, when I think about just the fact that the NGFS has been around, I think since like 2017, and even before that, other central banks, even before the NGFS was founded, have been like publicly disclosing their commitment to kind of weaving climate science more deeply into their banking (laughs) functions since like 2015, right? Like England, China, Japan, major central banking uh, like forces in the economy have already declared their intention to do this. Um, and then the NGFS uh, up to this point, including the US now has 91 members uh, that's covering 88% of the world economy and 85% of global emissions. The problem is we've just joined them in 2020. Uh, and really as a group, it's kind of soft. Like I was, I was just comparing it to the UN, like really what this group does is like publish reports, do research and like hang out like they like call meetings together. Um, So it's like, you know, we've got a slow start. We also kind of unfortunately have the reality that the current leadership at the Fed hasn't changed uh, since President Biden took office. Biden basically decided to keep the current head of the Fed in place for economic stability. And that does not bode well for the most radical actions that the Fed could take, which we outlined above in the uh, impact section. So we're kind of looking at the same leadership in, you know, in the chair, uh, that used or expanded the Main Street lending program to bail out the <laughs> decidedly un-Main Street industry that is big oil. And as I was mentioning, mm-hmm. yep, and as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, many of President Biden's most climate-focused cabinet members have been resigning left and right and signaling that the current administration will likely not pull the trigger on sort of like a nuclear finance option <laughs> that starts at the Fed. We're also... When I think about like political forces at play, we're in a midterm election year. The Democrats are kind of already expected to get beat up at the polls. And with the current failures to pass the Build Back Better or the Voting Rights Bill, I don't personally see the kind of political will that would be necessary to pressure the Fed into essentially punching a hole in a life raft that's that it's built for the fossil fuels industry. So I, me personally, Susanna, I'm thinking like my best guess as an optimist <laughs> is that like, let's just paint a picture of Biden's final year in office. You know, 2024, he's making a big political play that includes like specifically a really, really strong platform that's centering on climate change. At that point, with like his legacy on the ballot and a voting public hopefully behind him, we could see the kinds of sweeping changes that use the Fed's full power to sort of devalue fossil fuels uh, in a time frame that could significantly improve our chances of hitting the decarbonization goals set out by the Paris Agreement. So like I'm saying like it's a it's like an election year thing. <laughs> 2024. Uh, I think the Fed, if if they go nuclear, that's when it happens. Well, and I think timing is important too, because I mean, if the oil industry failed right now, like, hey, my house is still heated with oil. I still power my car with oil products, you know, like, are we even ready from an infrastructure point of view to pull the plug on oil industries? Like that seems like an important part of the timing stuff too. Yeah, totally. It would not, we would need a transitional time. And a lot of the research that I was reading about that transitional time actually shows that without the additional assistance that the Fed has provided in terms of emergency funding, without a lot of sort of accounting accountability, like just throwing money and cheap interest rates at loans going to the oil industry, that's what's actually kept prices high. There's this um, there's this pretty well-regarded theory that tying back to labor, real estate, and extraction prices, the oil industry would need to immediately lower its price at the pump or its price at whatever the air quotes here, natural gas that's like carted around in trucks to heat homes or whatever. 
those prices would actually drop at retail because the oil industry would need to sell off its assets to say to stay solvent. So there would absolutely be a mess. There would be a sort of like an operational fracas where like the oil industry without the life raft, uh, you know, from the Fed would basically be in real competition with itself as an industry. And folks that had uh, standing reserves, which many, 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 many oil companies have gigantic reserves already extracted, uh, would need to sell them off to stay solvent. So we would actually see a potential near future where if the Fed applies this sort of downward pressure, the price actually goes down. Uh, which would make uh, a wild, you know, I, I think the, the thing we'd have to be careful for there is just like overconsumption, right? If like gas is cheap, I don't know, is everyone going to start like, what is it, rolling coal or whatever, that horrible thing that people do in Hemis? Rolling coal? Have you ever heard of this, rolling coal, where people no. just like spew exhaust fumes at you from their cars? It's like a thing, apparently. Oh, wow. wow. People who drove uh, Priuses when they first came out, the hybrid Priuses, would get coal rolled where like a big, like, you know, super pickup truck would like pull up in front of it and just like spew exhaust at the Prius driver. Rolling coal, it's horrible. One of the many horrible things that we humans do to each other. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so amazing. Yeah, I do think that your kind of poking holes in timing uh, makes a lot of sense. So let's imagine even if the Fed doesn't do the nuclear option like this year or next, let's even imagine they do the nuclear option in 2024, we would see an, a pretty immediate impact, but it would kick off that kind of you know, wild time where there's kind of a sell-off of assets, price of the pump would come down theoretically, and you know, smaller or less nimble uh, oil companies would either go bankrupt or be acquired and consolidated into larger ones. So we'd start to see a sort of shrinking of the industry overall. I think the impact would be sudden. And I think it would be good for sort of a long-term death knell of the oil industry. But I do think that you're right as well. We wouldn't see an immediate cessation of burning fossil fuels. The, the, the global economy is still very much powered by fossil fuels, unfortunately. So in terms of a swift kind of uh, turnaround there, it would be tough. It would be, it would be tough. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like we're already kind of talking about cost here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which I know is another, another part of our framework here, but, um, I don't know. I just have a hard time believing that they wouldn't figure out some way to, to raise the price of the pump just because it's such an effective political lever. Yes. Um, yes. like I don't, I know you drive an electric car, but I'm still on an internal combustion vehicle and every time I go to the pump, pretty much without fail, there's at least one Biden sticker next to the price. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. Which is just, wow. Like somebody yeah. went to the trouble of printing up Biden stickers and then put them all over gas pumps. But just to make the political point that the price of gas has gone up under his executive leadership. Yes, so absolutely. I just, I don't know. I feel like there's more dirty tricks like that in store and they know it's extremely effective to put pain at that pump at that cost. Yeah, no. And I don't think you're wrong. I think this is really just a kind of a cold calculation by admittedly like, you know, climate focused climate activist writers um, that were sort of looking at the year 2020 through the year 2021. So it's it's absolutely like a limited study, but I think you're right. Like with the, the sort of, there is no bottom to the, the there's no depths that the, uh, the fossil fuel uh, industry or their lobbies would go to try to control the narrative. So I don't, I don't think, yeah, I, I think that timing and cost are two really important factors. And I think on cost, if we really just like looked at the Fed essentially cutting off the oil industry, like the nuclear option, uh, I think the cost would be pretty stagger. Uh, let's just say transformative. <laughs> it's it's kind of from where we sit. It's kind of hard to imagine an American economy without fossil fuels. But suffice to say, without one or with one that was severely hobbled by a lack of you know lifeline from the Fed, the the impact would be huge. You know, as I'm saying, one study says the price the pump would actually plummet. Uh, during an asset sell-off. I think you're right that there's a sort of counterpoint to that. But basically, what the oil industry would have to do in that moment would start to sell off assets and shrink their extraction and production costs. That would also mean that entire communities of Americans would likely be out of work. And other transitional industries around 
the oil industry would begin to sort of soak up the windfall. Investors would pull out of fossil fuel reliant industries and reroute their funds. Debt holders would come calling for their dues. Basically, as Peter Venkman said in Ghostbusters, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> basically, the Fed would be instigating a massive transfer of wealth and assets in the American and global markets. So for some, the impact would likely be far-reaching and terrible. For others, it would actually make life and business boom. I'm not going to you know, try to apply a value judgment here. Uh, just sort of returning to the goal of the solution season of investigating the proposed solution. And in the sort of hypothetical fiscal nuclear option, I actually think that the short-term cost would be the reduction uh, at the price of the pump. There would be the end of salaries of many oil workers. They'd like they would go away. Uh, and then, unfortunately, some golden parachute payouts of various executives that can retire to wherever oil executives retire to. Hell, I don't know. The cost would be transformative. Um, but I think that's why in this case, the X factors that we'll get to eventually are critical. Yeah. I mean, we're just, you know, talking about pulling the plug on financing one of the biggest pillars of society, really. It's not even just the economy. It's just fossil fuel fuels the way everything is done. Yeah. It's just hard to imagine what the actual cost would be of unplugging that. Yes. Um, especially, you know, I, I can imagine the um, optimist in, you know, the optimistic vision of us all preparing to do this together and kind of, un, you know, all the hands on the cord, unplugging it together, how that might go versus a lot of people say, trying to keep the plug in the wall, you know, and say, right. no, 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 we, we don't need to do this. Um, yeah. Like that, the vision of what that would be like and the way it would be narrativized and messaged in the media and the sides and, it just like the cost really does feel messy. But again, when I think about that IPCC report, uh, you know, saying that society is on the path to collapse between 2040 and 2050, you know, imagining that we keep just doing business as usual for the next 20 to 30 years, and then society collapses. It's like, do we do it now in a planned way? Like, do we do we take that transformative cost now in a planned way? when the climate isn't so bad and we still do have resources or do we do it later when there's a lot fewer options and the weather is already much more extreme and you know it's kind of like the transformative change is coming whether we like it or not like do, yes. we, do we do it right do we plan for it now do we do it or do we just put our head back in the sand yes um, oh, so, well so said. yeah yeah I it think... feels like the cost is a, a tricky one to quantify but it's, it's we're going to pay it regardless Yes, and I think woven into kind of what you're saying, a transitional plan, the inevitability of the change that's coming. I actually, if you don't mind, I'll kind of switch over to X factors because I think there's one really critical X factor here that not only makes the Fed's nuclear option kind of viable, like doable at all, but also makes it a really critical element of a rescue plan for America to get off of fossil fuels. And that to me, that X factor, it can go by many names, right? A transition plan, a sort of like a, you know, some sort of like transformational plan, but really it had a name just a few months ago and that was uh, Build Back Better. Because Build Back Better really contained the beginnings, the programs that were the beginnings of that transition away from the fossil fuel industry. Because like, look, if we use the full force of the Fed to like rip the carpet out from under the feet of the fossil fuel industry, we need a transitional plan, as you're saying. Like nobody's going to be cheering the, the falling price of gas at the pump if they also lost their job, right? And as well, gas prices falling would potentially further exacerbate the problem of CO2 emissions in the short term, which we definitely don't want. So if the nuclear options even going to be a possibility, right, from the Fed. We have to, as a society, as a government, guarantee a significant majority of folks who would lose their jobs, they would be guaranteed some form of training, work replacement, or retirement, right? Like a transition to either the next industry or the next milestone of their lives. And, you know, that kind of confidence both in the you know the, the the sort of planning and the confidence around employment is obviously one of the major charges of the fed so you can see how both would kind of enable each other and really like as you were saying you know 
uh, while there are still kind of cars on the road, will never be done with gas. The other part of Build Back Better was the sort of very gutsy and sort of legislatively confident movement towards unionized electric vehicle creation and adoption. And that's currently off the table with Build Back Better too. So as that bill is currently stalled out, I, I would kind of look to see what the current administration can pass in the coming two years. That's my X factor. Like there's a lot of confident rhetoric coming off of Capitol Hill that the sort of climate and electrification measures are still on the table. They might not be in a bill called Build Back Better, but that they're still popular and they're still being worked on. So if we can guarantee sort of electrification and transitional vocational measures along that scale, I could see the Fed taking a more radical approach, like I was saying, by that 2024 year that would both catch us up to other central banks of the world and importantly, loop back to sort of the Fed stated mission of maximizing employment, you know, moderating long-term interest rates and stabilizing prices in this case at the pump. So that, that's my big X factor. If we can get a transitional bill, even if it's not called Build Back Better, that guarantees a transition, a vocational transition to the clean economy, to the renewables economy, and uh, a real sort of push forward an incentive package for electric vehicle adoption, I think that we could start to see, if not a full nuclear option, radical moves by the Fed uh, in the year 2024. Well, I'm sold. I mean, <laughs> we should just go ahead and uh, make this happen. So can we just fast forward two years and see if you're right? Well, I mean, there's still important work to be done in these interim two years. And to that interim two years, my other X factor is not a thing. It's a person. (laughs) And that person is uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin. So Sarah Bloom Raskin is one of Biden's appointments to the vice chair of the Fed. So even though the top dog, the sort of chair of the Fed, got to stay as a holdover from the Trump administration, Sarah Bloom Raskin, the vice chair of the Fed, one of the vice chairs of the Fed, has been outspoken in arguing that bank regulators should consider the financial risks posed by climate change. And if it's okay, I want to kind of let her speak in her own words. So this is a, a Sarah Bloom Raskin quote. Quote, even though the United States lacks a single monolithic financial regulator, the complexity of its regulatory apparatus need not imply climate inaction. All U.S. regulators can and should be looking at their existing powers and considering how they might be brought to bear on efforts to mitigate climate risk. This imperative means two things. First, regulators must move faster in preparing firms within their jurisdiction to weather climate effects that are not being eliminated by markets. Second, they need to ask themselves how their existing instruments can be used to incentivize a rapid, orderly, and just transition away from high emissions and biodiversity-destroying investments. Acting before any major crisis has occurred is not exactly the American way. Historically, U.S. regulators have preferred to rely first on market discipline and private sector initiative. Only when those fail have they intervened to mitigate climate, uh, mitigate the damage, almost always at taxpayers' expense. End quote. So right there, I think we've got a potential, if not a radical, we've got someone who is radically more activist about the sort of fiduciary systems of the U.S. and how they can act to sort of mitigate uh, and fight back against a climate catastrophe. So that's Sarah Bloom Raskin is my like, fingers crossed, other X factor, you know, vice chair of the Fed, every single day looking for opportunities, hopefully to uh, to get us in alignment with the other banks of the world uh, and fight climate change. Yeah, we need some more of that Bloom Raskin energy <laughs> up in the Fed. Up in that Fed, get that Bloom Raskin energy. <laughs> mm, no, I mean, I, I love that. I love that energy and that, um, you know, assignments, I guess, as it were, to to folks in similar positions of power. And it makes me think that these banks and financial institutions are just going to need so much help unpacking, you know, what investments are good for the climate and what investments are not good for the climate. Um, because even, you know, in our discussions, we've seen confusion even in our industry of like oh well it you know it takes so many missions to make new things should we just be using the things that we have and like there's just 
so many things that need to change about our thinking um, and, and our, you know, especially the way we design systems. And we're just going to need so much expertise to help people making these policies really figure out what they do want to incentivize and what they do not want to incentivize with financial policy. Absolutely. Yeah. Really, really good point. So Susanna, when you kind of take a look at this, you know, from a 5,000 foot perspective, like how would you kind of grade uh, the Fed when it comes to impact timing cost and the X factors? Do you have a sort of sense of where you might place them? I mean, it really does feel like the impact could be huge. You're just kind of taking the rug out from underneath um, the industry in a way that would make them really meaningfully have to change their um, business practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like impact is huge, right? Impact probably somewhere in the A range, right? Somewhere, yeah. Somewhere, I think, in, it, I think if, especially if we just consider it the, like the nuclear option or near nuclear option, cutting off funding, advising others to, uh, to, against investing, cutting off their banks and direct investors from investing, I think that would be huge. That would definitely shrink the oil industry massively. I would put that in the A range. Yeah. And then, I mean, cost is sort of unquantifiable. <laughs> yes. Transformative. Um, <laughs> Gigantic. <laughs> right. It really feels like timing and sort of political will is really the sticking point here. It feels like we probably don't have the ability to enact this change now. You're projecting maybe by 2024, we could do that. Um, if we have a, you know, a big change in leadership at a federal level Mm -hmm. in 2024 is it going to be possible after that um you know and and as the fed is an apparatus of the government it really does feel like there's a lot tied up with this solution politically yes and gosh i just call me a pessimist but i'm not feeling great about the political will in our country right now to get stuff like this done yeah i i really couldn't push back on you there i i had a hard time because i was especially in the research for this episode, I was like, oh my God, it's the Fed. The Fed is the ultimate solution. They're so great. But I think you, I hit the same wall that you did based on a couple of really great questions that you posed to me in my research document. And I do think political will, it's woven between all of these, uh, but it's definitely one big one that's going to affect timing. And I think it's going to affect impact as well, because like for the Fed to go full nuclear, it's like a transformative move. Like the the entirety of American society, political apparatus and all needs to be ready for this shift. So I do agree with you. I think it's like, I wouldn't give it a failing grade, but I definitely think that this is like a low, low mark. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it might get like a D from me on timing. On timing. Um, yeah, Totally. I, I gave timing kind of the low C's. I gave cost closer to the D because it's almost incalculable, the amount of transformative work that would need to be done to disencumber us from fossil fuels altogether, like the nuclear option, let's say, a, a shrink, a constantly shrinking oil industry. So I was kind of factoring like an A against a C and a D. The X factor, if we say that indeed there's an optimistic outlook for the climate provisions of Build Back Better, I could see this like as a whole, I could see the Fed being in that like mid C to C plus range. I'm having a hard time bringing it into the Bs, however. Um, do you have, could you give me a tiebreaker between a C plus and a B minus? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's actually a pretty solid B um, because of your X factor, Sarah Bloom Raskin. Okay. And her uh, Bloom Raskin energy. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, she is the vice chair of the Fed. Um, Biden did put her there. That means we are getting some leadership, some movement in the Fed, some will to see this kind of thing happen. And I think we're all terrified of systemic change because it's terrifying, right? It's, it's really hard to imagine what things are going to look like when we make such big moves as this um, and make such big change to systems that affect every single one of us. Um, but you know, I'm just reminded by something that I come back to often when I start getting into the, uh, the climate despair zone, which is that the system doesn't want you to think that it can be changed, right? That's the whole thing. It's like people, people in power, systems in power, they want you to think that it's really hard for this stuff to change and that it therefore that it won't. And that's simply not the case. Like we can, we can look back through the, you know, every moment in history and see big changes happening. Um, 
when there is the will to make it happen. And and the fact that Sarah Bloom Raskin is there with these thoughts, with this attitude, with this advisement of how she thinks the Fed should be doing things, I think we just need, you know, I think we're I think we're a lot closer to making those big changes happen than we think we are. And once they start get rolling, I think they're going to they're going to snowball. So I think even though the larger political will may not be there and the timing is a big question, the cost is a big question. I think this is actually one that is possible. Um, and the fact that Sarah Bloom Raskin is already there, it means she's having conversations like this every day with her colleagues, you know? So I think we're closer than, than we think we are. I think this might be a B. Awesome. Yeah. I think, you know, hearing that, and especially you've evoked it a couple of times, that study on the potential societal collapse, anytime we're afraid of radical change, all we need to do is just look up that report again and we'll get the, we'll get the courage up, uh, but our blood up again for that huge change. So yeah, I'll, I'll stick with that. I think if we can meet in the middle and kind of call it a B minus, I think I'll be happy with that. I'm, I'm happy with that. Happy All right. That. Sounds good. So the Fed as a potential solution for the climate crisis, you get a B minus. Awesome. Hey, Susanna, uh, you're doing the research right now for next week's episode. What, what are you looking at? I sure am. I am looking at regenerative agriculture and I'm nerding out so hard right now. Oh my God. I'm so excited. I love regenerative ag. I am in the middle of reading a white paper by the Northeast Organic Farming Association of Massachusetts titled Soil Carbon Restoration. Can biology do the job? (laughs) Let's hope so, because it ain't going to be the Fed this year. (laughs) Susanna, thank you so much for wading into a very like dense and unfortunately academic set of terms with the Fed, but I really appreciate unpacking that with you uh, on this episode of the solution season. No, thank you for the research and and for bringing this weighty topic. I mean, I, it does seem like it could be a, a really solid solution. So I'm stoked we got to cover that. Yeah, for sure. And thank you, listener, for wading into these economic topics as they pertain to climate change. Uh, If between now and next week's episode, you are thinking about going solar and you're in New York's Hudson Valley or the Capital Region, or if you're in Vermont, please look us up. We're at suncommon.com. We are experts in going solar and we want to be your partner on your journey towards renewable energy. Uh, And as well, if you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, fun suggestions for a potential solution, email us. We're at solarspill at suncommon.com. So for the Solar Spill, I'm Tavi. I'm Susanna. Thank you so much for listening.